Why did you buy that? Those were my mother's words when I wore my Soundgarden Screaming Life shirt the day after I bought it at their concert. It was a white oversized shirt that said Soundgarden on the front and Total Fucking Godhead in big red block letters on the back. I bought it because I knew it would piss her off, but also because it would proclaim to the world my love for Soundgarden, easily the coolest band at the time. I also bought it because I knew it was overstocked from two albums ago and it would make me appear to be down since day one. Now I wish I had bought the Louder Than Love shirts they had for sale that night as well. When I first heard the song Loud Love by the band, something inside me lit up. Maybe it was burnout from all the metal and rock and roll I was listening to, but I knew this was something different. When I saw the band photo of Louder Than Love and read the names of the band members, I was stunned. Kim Thale on guitar? Hiro Yamamoto on bass? In heavy music up to that point, there weren't any bands that I knew that were interracial. I think Sacrifice was the only one I could think of. I cannot describe here how much of a profound impact seeing that in the insert of Louder Than Love had on me. It was definitely inspiring, but beyond that, it was relieving. After that, I glommed onto Soundgarden as one does to a spring in the desert. For a couple of years, they were the touchstone band I used to judge other bands. As much as I eventually strayed away when they put out their preceding albums like Super Unknown and Down on the Upside, I would always eventually check in and see how my old favorite band was doing, kind of like catching up with an old friend. They could never let me down despite how far they strayed from Ultra Mega OK and Louder Than Love because of the one anchor through it all, Chris Cornell's voice. It's powerful and magnetic and distinct and friendly. But its true magic is the ability to make me feel like a teenager all over again. So because of that, Chris Cornell could never write a bad song. I have never said this publicly, but I'll say it now. When Chris Cornell passed away, I cried like a baby. I've only done that once before about someone I never knew, and that was when Adam Yauch of the Beastie Boys died. I paid tribute to Cornell in the pages of Close Up Magazine for the June 2017 issue. I listened to Say Hello to Heaven by Temple of the Dog, driving around in my car, and laid Chris Cornell and Soundgarden to rest in my own small way. But then a couple of months ago, Greg Renoff, author of Van Halen Rising, author of Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life and music, and a previous guest on this podcast, episodes 121 and 221, reached out to introduce me to Corbin Reef, author of Lighters in the Sky and the new upcoming biography on Chris Cornell entitled, are you ready? Total fucking Godhead. When I heard the title of Corbin's book, I knew I had to have him on the podcast. I realized as a fervent fan turned casual listener, I still didn't know anything about Chris Cornell, the person. I had no idea who he was or where he came from outside of the songs he sang. I didn't know he had kids, if he had any, brothers, sisters, wives, or nothing. Mainly because, despite his rock star status, he still seemed to be just a regular shy guy that shunned the spotlight off stage. Corbin's book is the first biography ever written on Chris Cornell, and it helps reveal a little bit of the person behind this music I held so dear while bringing me up to speed on his output. Total Fucking Godhead was released just this week on Post Hill Press and can be found at all good bookstores. Call it serendipity or maybe a green light from a higher power, but it did seem more than coincidental that right around the time I was finally back listening to his voice, Chris Cornell's family released his cover of Patience, the Guns N' Roses song, on what would have been his 56th birthday, July 20, and the first new material anyone had heard from the man in five years. When I first heard Chris Cornell's voice, it was an untamed wailing bellow of anguish and defiance that over time simmered into a confident croon. Now with his passing, it takes on more weight and has become haunting and spiritual to me. If you're a Soundgarden fan, you know this already. If you aren't a Soundgarden fan, I recommend you listen to them ASAP. And if you're an old fan that needs some reacquaintance, like I did, jump in anywhere. Chris Cornell's voice is timeless.
Thanks for listening to this podcast. I really mean it. I like doing it and it keeps me busy during lockdown. Your online comments and messages makes me know that someone out there is listening. I hope you're able to forget about this nuttiness going around in in our world currently and at least for the duration of an episode. So I'm going to keep doing this weekly until the lockdown has been lifted. So in another seven days, another episode will be shot out into the world. Oh, also, if my voice here sounds particularly gruff right now, I am happy to report it's because I've been singing my balls off and can reveal to you why very shortly, Uh, but not right here. Anyways, it's great. It's good news. I'm glad my voice is shot. In the meantime, please enjoy this episode. It's with author Corbin Reef and his new book, Total Fucking Godhead, the biography of Chris Cornell, and it starts now. The Tango Joe's podcast is the best around. They play the kid as Tango's go out to love for free. I'm so glad I like to sometimes. Jimmy in from fucked up. Stop playing. Hang down. Down. Thank you for listening to the Dango Jones Podcast! You motherfuckers! It's fucking great! It fucking slays! Thank you for listening to the Dango Jones Podcast! You motherfuckers! Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, get ready because the Danko Jones podcast starts. Now. Hello, uh, Corbin. Yeah, how's it going, Danko? Yeah, good to talk to you. I'm stoked to talk to you too. Thank you so much for uh, for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, um, of course, as you know, uh, Greg Renoff uh, tipped me off to uh, your upcoming book, uh, which is coming out this week or tomorrow, right? Tomorrow, yeah. Crazy times. Ah, so this I'm getting you at a very exciting time right now. <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. It's about to happen. The possibilities are endless. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, it's a... Um, so... I, fin- I finished it. It's gr- it's a great book. Uh, congratulations! Oh, thank you so much. I'm I'm stoked that you liked it. Yeah, it's really I, now. I can't remember if I told you or if I said this out loud when I saw your uh, book cover, or if I told you in an email. But the total fucking godhead is the name of the book, and yes. I have a connection with that saying because that was the only T-shirt I ever wore where my mom freaked out on and it was the <laughs> screaming live sound garden on the front with the dinosaur or whatever the godzilla and then the total fucking godhead on the back i'll never forget that uh and uh, i got it at their show way back when and uh that has been uh always on my mind whenever i s- see the name Soundgarden, i'm like total fucking godhead <laughs> I think the same thing, man. It's it's something about that phrase and that band. It just makes sense. You got to tell me more about that show, though. What what year did you see them? Uh, I believe it was 1990, and awesome. it was the tour that you actually wrote about in the book with Voivod and Faith No More. That's badass. Where, where was it? It was in Toronto. Now, your take, I think uh, you interviewed Snake for that portion. Mm-hmm. Am I right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And uh, he, of course, it's Chris Cornell's biography, so of course it's going gonna, it's gonna to be slanted in Soundgarden's favor. However, I have a different memory from a different show on that same tour, and uh, Soundgarden went the worst that night, because you're in Voivod territory. <laughs> I mean, right. so I remember it very well. Faith No More came out, they destroyed. And then Soundgarden was in the middle, and I think... This was one of the only few dates where Voivod headlined because it's Canada. Right. And um, uh, while Soundgarden were playing, people were just yelling out, Voivod, Voivod. <laughs> and then it just pissed Chris Cornell off, I remember. Or maybe it didn't, but that's how I remember it. Where he said, one more song and the amazing Voivod are coming on stage. And the whole crowd erupted. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, that has been the only time I saw them. And it actually did leave a bad impression on me for that for Soundgarden as a, a live band. And I've always mm -hmm. said that they, I saw them and I didn't like, they're not a very good live band. Um, so that's, that was always just my impression. Now, however, they have always been one of my favorite bands. So there's that. Totally. Yeah. No, I uh, was talking to Snake was uh, was fantastic. You know, he was very complimentary of Chris. And he I think, you know, I read some of the reviews of that that tour where Soundgarden had to be a tougher time in Canada when they were on Voivod's territory. But but Snake was complimentary about about Chris and just talking about, you know, the time that he saw him uh, basically monkey barring through the rafters of the building, you know, to the soundstage and then back and just thinking to himself, like, how the hell am I going to follow that guy? <laughs> so right. they, they traded licks along the way for sure. I'm sure. I mean, it, at the time, you know, this is before the alternative, alternative nation got codified before right. Nirvana broke. Um, and so there was such a wonderful um, feeling in the air that like, what's going to happen? Like these bands are the next thing. It's not going to be, um, you know, whatever Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses anymore. It, it's going <laughs> right. to be whatever these guys can come up with and all their friends. And and so it was a wonderful package. And I was, at the time, I remember I was into all three bands so much. I had all their albums and I was so into them that the whole night I was, I I had to get there early because I really didn't care who headlined. And Yeah. Uh, yeah. They came, Soundgarden were supposed to come back um the following year, so it was 89 and 90, I believe, uh, but the following year they um, were on another package tour that was supposed to come to the same venue, but Danzig, the headliner, couldn't get over the border, so what ended uh. up happening was uh, Soundgarden found out and turned around, but Corrosion of Conformity didn't find out because there's no cell phones, and uh, they ended up playing in Toronto their own club show before rejoining the tour, but... That was another tour. <laughs> what a different time, right? You just you just show up to the gig and you have to find out. Oh no, it's just you. The headliners are all gone and corrosion. It's just do what you got to do. You know, enter entertain the folks. That's crazy. Yeah. What, what ended up happening? Well, I would. I, I, I. You know, I'm just a teenager then, and so I realized, hey, you can meet the band if you show up in the afternoon. So I would <laughs> do that, and uh, you know, it was hit and miss. Um, but that day, I met. Uh, Corrosion Conformity, the um, blind lineup, and uh, I had all my stuff to get signed, and yeah, so that was a. Even though it wasn't Danzig and Soundgarden, it was still a fun afternoon. Oh hell yeah, that that tour was uh, by all accounts pretty good too. I mean, to get the the gothic element of Danzig, and then to get the you know, you know, louder than love era Soundgarden, that's that's gonna hurt your ears a little bit. <laughs> I remember reading about that one and kind of thinking, man, I wish I would have shown up for that one. Yeah, so that that brings me to this book, Total Fucking Godhead. Um, you're a, obviously a huge Soundgarden fan. I, I, I know in the book you, you did say you, you had to, pretty much in doing this book, you had to kind of just only listen to anything Chris Cornell for three years. Um, uh, your initial hesitation, why, to write this book? Yeah, you know... After Chris died in uh, 2017, you know, I was finishing up my first book, Lighters in the Sky. Uh, it's about the greatest concerts of all time. Um, and my editor, you know, knew I was a, I was a big Chris Cornell fan. And, uh, okay. uh, you know, I had I had written some stuff about him on Uprocks where I was working at the time also. And uh, he said, you know, you ever, you ever thought about, you know, writing something about Chris? And I remember thinking at the time, like, you know, there's tons of books about Nirvana. There's books mm. about Pearl Jam. There's books about grunge. There's even a book about Alice in Chains. But, you know, there really wasn't. Except for one book written in 1997 before Soundgarden had uh, disbanded, uh, there really wasn't anything you know substantive about uh, Chris Cornell or, or Soundgarden really out there. And I remember thinking after he died that was just it just didn't, it just didn't rub me the right way. But you mm -hmm. know at that time I still wasn't really convinced that I would be the right guy to necessarily do something like that. And so I kind of sat on it and told him no. And but then I paid my respects. You know I went I flew down to L.A. and I paid my respects to Chris and. I took a long drive, and, and just that idea kept gnawing at me that I really wanted people to understand, you know, how important Soundgarden was to the history of Seattle music, to music itself, and, and what incredible songwriter Chris Cornell was. So 
kind of at that point, I decided a few months later that, you know, I, I want to tell this story as best I can as, as a music writer and, and let people know just, you know, what impact he made on the world through his music and, and how he evolved as a songwriter and how he faced the challenges in his life he did and overcame them and, and the struggles that he went through and, and hopefully tell a clear story of, you know, that people maybe don't know about, you know, this, this, this icon, you know, this, this shirtless, long-haired guy who's screaming <laughs> his lungs out on stage or, or you know, doing uh, the, you know, the James Bond theme song. Like, what, what's his deal? Because, you know, you know, he wasn't always uh, in the spotlight as much as, you know, Eddie Vedder or, or Kurt mm. Cobain. So mm. that was kind of my goal. Let Chris tell his own story as much as I possibly could and, and let people know more about him. Yeah, it, it's nice to hear that you wrote this from uh, the point of view of a true uh, fan you know, it wasn't another writer taking on an assignment to write a book on this fallen hero. So that's nice to hear that, you know, you did have a, a genuine love for the su the subject in question and, and his band and his music. Um, so that's nice to hear. Um, uh, but like you're saying, he's a difficult subject to write about. And I think that's one of the reasons why Soundgarden never got I feel, and I think you make, you pointed out in the book at certain points, they didn't get equal just do like, you know, uh, their contemporaries, Alice in Chains and Nirvana. And they were kind of out there before any of them, arguably. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, Soundgarden started in, in 19, at really the end of 1984, uh, long, long before, you know, grunge hit, long before even that <laughs> Voivod tour we were just talking about. I mean, mm -hmm. they were around for almost five years kicking around on the independent scene, putting out um, songs on you know local collaborations, and then one of the first bands to ink with Sub Pop Records. Right. Um, in fact, you know, Sub Pop probably wouldn't have happened to the way it did if, you know, Jonathan Ponham and one of the founders of that label walked in on uh, a gig that they were playing at the uh, Rainbow uh, Tavern in the University District here in Seattle. Uh, just randomly one night happened to see them and thought to himself, this band is incredible. Chris Cornell blew him away and he decided, you know, that night, you know, maybe I'm not an aspiring musician. Maybe I should be a record label executive and puts up $20,000 of his own money to get help to get Soundgarden a record, you know, a record out there. And, and, you know, the story of Sub Pop Records, the story of Soundgarden, the story of Seattle music and grunge in the 90s doesn't happen maybe necessarily if that, that moment doesn't occur. Mm -hmm. And they were so pivotal, pivotal in, in, in the creation of that scene and, and bringing a lot of attention to it. You know, um, I was talking to Aaron Jacobus, the head, the AR at A&M Records uh, in the early 90s and 80s. And, uh, you know, he was talking about how, you know, Soundgarden was one of the catalysts for a lot of L.A. and New York executives to come to Seattle for the first time and recognize what kind of scene was going on around there. And, and it was all because Soundgarden was drawing so much attention from, you know, Ultra Mega OK and, and, and that Screaming Life and FOP record. And, and, you know, a lot of bands got their first exposure to, you know, the 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 business world in music because of, of Soundgarden. And then, you know, they get, you know, Nirvana happens and Pearl Jam happens. And mm -hmm. then their due comes later with, you know, Super Unknown and Bad Motorfinger. But, you know, their success was such a long time coming versus a lot of those other bands. Um, and, you know, the history of Seattle music can't be told without that experience. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And it's, it's nice that this book kind of levels the playing field in, 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 in your small way, or hopefully in a big way, come uh, tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, levels the playing field for, for the band. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, you know, Soundgarden are a band that I got into a long time ago. I got into, my entry point with Soundgarden was the Loud Love video. And oh, nice. in Canada, there was an all, all overnight alternative um, sh um, video show that played you know, punk rock and indie rock or whatever. There is no kind of real categorization. All the videos they couldn't play during the day, they, they just stuffed into this one show. <laughs> and then uh, it aired at like one in the morning. I was too young to stay up. Uh, and then they would repeat it on Sunday afternoons when I saw the mm -hmm. video. And there was something about the look of the video, um, the, the look of the whole band um, that I just, I just had this feeling. And I think it was with a lot of people where it was like, we were suffering from thrash metal burnout, uh, uh, L.A. glam burnout in terms of guitar-based music at the time. And right. this was so um, refreshing for me, you know. And so not only that, but as a visible minority, uh, the Loud Love video has Jason Everman in it, if I'm correct. Um, but when I, after the video, and I looked 
in, I found the album and I, in the store and I look, I bought it on cassette actually. And I looked at the uh, lineup and I saw Hiro Yamamoto, <laughs> Kim Thale. And I looked at the photos and I, I did a little bit of research. I, I found a, a magazine uh, uh, with an article about them and this kind of half interracial, half uh, this interracial band where half the members were not white at a time when rock music was dominated uh, by, by, by white males. Um, right. it, Soundgarden, to me, will always be one of my favorite bands. And that is because of that. Um, and so they, they hold a very special place in my heart. And even though they went on and I, reading, your, <laughs> reading your book, I actually did not know that they went on to even greater heights after you know, Bad Motorfinger, because they put out Bad Motorfinger, and for me, I was like, wow, this is really good. Not as good as Louder Than Love, though, <laughs> but it's good. <laughs> um, and I loved Ultra Mega OK as well. So those three albums, and then after that, I have to admit that every album, I, I became less and less um, uh, quick on the draw, mm-hmm. but I would eventually find my way to them, and I'd listen to it, and then Reading your book, I had to go back and go, I did not know they put out another album like after the reunion. I did not know he put out an acoustic solo album. I did not know that he did so much soundtrack work. Now I have to, I have to uh, hunt those tracks down for all these movies. I, I had no idea that he did stuff beyond like the Audio Slave stuff I heard and some of the solo stuff. And of course, I, we'd all heard about the Timberland album and stuff. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, so, so beyond that, you know, and I, I have to say with a little bit of embarrassment and shame that I did not check it out as it was happening as much. It's always been after the fact, post Bad Motorfinger for me, but I never dismissed them. I was just never that quick on the drive. Like, oh yeah, I heard they have a new album out. I gotta go, yeah, I should ch- chase that down. So this book, actually, while I was reading it, um, I would be like, what? And then I'd, you know, I'd, I'd go and go to Spotify or whatever and, and hunt and, and give it a, albeit a cursory listen, but I would be like, oh, okay, okay. So now I understand what you're, you're talking about as you were going through the, the, the production, the, the chapters on the, each pro, uh, album's production. You know? So that was really that interesting. Was- that was a fun part of it, too, because I think that, um, you know, Chris has this image of him as this ultimate, you know, rock metal screamer guy. Uh-huh. But, you know, as I was kind of doing the research for the book and just learning about how, you know, he made so many left turns in his career. You know, there was there were so many times where, you know, he could have gone the easy route and didn't. There were so many times where he could have kind of played the stereotype and did something else that was more interesting to him, even if it was sort of a commercial flop or a critical failure like that Timbaland album Scream. Um, but as a writer, it made it really interesting for me to kind of discover, like, mm. you know, where is he going with this? What's right. what's his motivation behind doing that album? Why did he um, why did he do make an album with Alan Johannes and Natasha, you know, from Eleven and make that his first solo album, Euphoria Morning? You know, right. why did he work with Steve Lillywhite and make this adult contemporary album called Carry On? You know, right. Uh, what was it like to meet the Queen of England after, you know, uh, putting out that uh, James Bond theme song? You know, well, playing Barack Obama's uh, second mm. inaugural. Like you just there's all these things that you kind of learn about him and all these different um, aspects of his character and his artistry that he really really pursued over the years, kind of at the expense of maybe some um, some success or recognition you might get otherwise, that it was it was very fascinating for me as a biographer to kind of try to track that arc and, and see where, you know, he was going with things and how his tastes and mood and, and perspectives changed kind of over time because he was constantly evolving throughout his entire life. I mean, you, the, the guy who made Screaming Life is almost, you know, unrecognizable from a, the guy who made, you know, um, Higher Truth. Or uh, or 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 uh, carry on or, or Euphoria Morning or or even that uh, last Soundgarden album King Animal. It's it's just a totally different thing. Yeah, I'm guilty of um, freezing them in time and <laughs> freezing them in carbonite and just putting them away in my mind. Um, so yeah, it is a little jarring when I've when I went in the process of reading the book and and and, and keeping up with the releases on. Sp- you know, Spotify or whatever. It was sometimes a little jarring where I, I had to remind myself exactly what you said, that this isn't, you know, the, the guy who sang hands all over. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's like, so, it, yeah, it was, it was my, after Loud Love, that was my favorite Soundgarden uh, song. And, right. Uh, yeah, so yeah, it was... Uh, where do you fall on Big Dumb Sex? I'm curious. Uh, uh, 
Oh, the song, you mean? The song, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't my favorite album cut. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I kind of didn't... I kind of... There was something about... Uh, even though they, they looked the same as other bands with the long hair, you know, uh, there was something about having the word sex in the title. I knew there it was kind of a, an irreverent take on it rather than right, exactly. if it was from, uh, I don't know, Poison, just off the top of my head. Big Dumb Sex would be, yeah, man, <laughs> Big Dumb Sex, let's go for it, dude. But I knew that they were kind of taking the piss. So, yeah. But still, I, as a song, it wasn't my favorite. But, uh, yeah, I loved, um, oh, what's that? Is it Gun? No. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Gun. I, I, you know, I heard uh, Louder Than Love. That's another thing is... Uh, even though it's been years and years and years since I'd heard Louder Than Love, when I put it on, um, I was like, you know what? I've heard this so album so many times in my life, I really don't need to hear it. It's not bad. It's one of my favorite albums. But it was interesting, that in Bad Motor Finger, where I was like, I don't need to hear this again. I really don't. It was weird. I thought <laughs> before I started reading your book, I was like, okay, let this light my sound garden afire anew. And it, it did it. And it's not um, an insult to the band and not your book at all. It was just simply, oh, sure. my, simply my ears were just like, you know, I, I respect this guy and I respect the guys in the bands he was in. But um, I, I ate it up. I, I devoured Soundgarden when I was a teenager to the point where it's like I did get Euphoria Morning because I was really curious. And I do have a bootleg of the entire sound uh, Stockholm acoustic show he did. Nice. Which is so incredible. Uh, and then I realized, reading your book, he actually put an official version of it out, and I heard it, and I said, no, this isn't as good as the Stockholm bootleg. Because <laughs> I'm just so used to it, you know. It's funny how that happens, right? Yeah. Um, but same tour, same vibe, same sounds, not the same takes. Right, um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that one, one is great because, like, especially live when you caught them, um, that's like it starts off pretty slow and it builds over time. But right. even live, it starts slower and builds faster, and it just, it just, it just, it's just a mind fuck. Yeah, I, I can't even think of another word for it. It's just like the way right. they 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 start so slow and turgid and then build into the cyclone of noise. It just, it's just always, it was always incredible. And I'm not a lyric guy, but I love the lyrics to a lot of his stuff. They were steeped in religion and. And especially Catholicism, I think, because when I got into them, I was in a Catholic boys' school. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, but um, it it did send me down memory lane at the same time, and also clued me into what had happened since. It was a it was a great read. There are a few uh, questions I have um, about it that I don't know. Like off the top of the book, you did. I mean, of course, you can't get into it, but you did kind of make a mention of some of the walls that were put in front of you as you were going through the process of writing it. So can you speak about that? Yeah, sure. You know, <clears throat> I tried to definitely talk to as many people that knew Chris as possible. And I ended up talking to dozens and dozens of people and, and really worked hard, like I said, you know, earlier to make sure that at the forefront, Chris Cornell was telling his own story as much as possible, so tracking down as many different interviews from him as, in his life as I could. And concert um banter like anything that could tell help him tell his story as best as i could i tried to do but you know there were definitely some roadblocks i would have loved to have talked to the Soundgarden guys and I, and I did speak to kim and interview him for a rolling stone piece while i was uh putting this book together but you know just with all the stuff that was kind of going on between uh those two camps that are happening at the time you know i wasn't able to officially get them on the record and and, and get a chance to have their input in the book but that being said, I, I definitely did consult, you know, the prior record of things they said, and you won't. Admit, I don't think you'll miss uh, their lack of per official participation because you know you'll get Kim's thoughts on get different guitar tunings and what was happening at the time, and and Matt Cameron's view on things from interviews he's given in the past. And uh, I tried to definitely allow them to speak in the book as well. You know, just you know, with everything that was kind of going on in the outside world, it was uh, it was difficult to make that happen. But you know, to, for Chris's memory and legacy, I really always intended on keeping him at the forefront. And once I kind of realized I was able to do that, you know, um, through the different sources I was able to track down and the different people I've talked to, Perry Farrell and uh, Jack and Dino, uh, just the list goes on and on. Stuart Hallerman. There's just a, a tons of people who were able to give me a lot of insight into what Chris was like and how they recorded those songs specifically. 
which as a music writer for me was a lot of the thrill was just kind of figuring out, you know, where did all this music come from? Um, how did he make it? How did he evolve as a drummer uh, into someone who's working with, you know, all E tuning and 7-Eleven time signatures and all this crazy stuff that he was doing and making songs with and, and the ways he was influenced. Um, so it was definitely an obstacle, but one that I did my best to overcome. And I hope that people, when they read it, definitely come away with a clear picture of, you know, what happened and, and what he was like. I don't think I, I, yeah, I didn't feel that anything was missing or there was uh, stuff that you didn't kind of not uncover. Um, it was a, a nice uh, inside look at, uh, at his life. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, you can talk to the direct guys like Matt Cameron and Kim Thale, but they'll always be protective. Sometimes it's the people, the surrounding players that, uh, give most insight, uh, like mm -hmm. uh, sometimes. So it's 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 interesting. So you spoke to, uh, okay. So of course Kim Thale, Matt Cameron. I can understand Ben Shepard. Uh, maybe not so easy to get to, but other people in bands like uh, the Pearl Jam guys. You're saying Perry Farrell, Jack and Dino must have been very insightful. Um, Jack. Great, yeah. yeah. There was so many people. Um, Mark Arm from Mud Honey was was a great resource. I talked to both of the founders of Sub Pop Records. I talked to pretty much almost everybody who produced an album with, uh, with Chris Cornell over the years. You know, uh, Steve Lee White, uh, Adam Casper, Michael Beinhorn, uh, tons of people to kind of help fill in the blanks where I wasn't able to kind of even be able to just ask Chris himself, like, "Hey, what were you thinking when you wrote Black Hole Sun?" You know, and it was kind of uh, awesome to talk to Michael Beinhorn about the frustration he felt when. Um, they were kind of prepping to make that album. He was, I, I, there was a recent Billboard piece that I kind of did an excerpt with, but um, I, I talked to the producer of Super Unknown, and uh, he was telling me about how Chris used to send him tapes, uh, just the kind of demos he was making before they made that album. And uh, there was a you know, point where there was kind of getting some sort of sameness to a lot of the songs, and, and it reached a, a head when Chris sent him a tape full of just 11 songs, and none of them made the album. None of them that were kind of up to muster, and Everyone was kind of beating their head against the wall, and, and Michael Beinhorn kind of goes to him and saying, like, what's the deal? What are you doing? And, and Chris kind of confides him. He's like, I'm trying to write a song that kind of will appeal to Soundgarden fans. And, and the producer says to him, you know, well, you know, what, do you, what kind of music do you like? And as you probably read, the Rosetta Stone to Chris's musical experience is the Beatles. And so he said the Beatles and Cream. And so Beinhorn says, well, write a song like the Beatles and Cream. So... You know, he's driving home one night. It's a dark night. This kind of lines are going by the highway, and this melody pops into his head. And he races home and whistles into a recorder. And uh, the next day, a couple days later, he trans transposes the melody onto a guitar and fills in the lyrics. And before you know it, you know, he has Black Hole Sun. And, and he included it on a tape that included the song called Anxious that had a, a guitar part from uh, Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains. Uh, this, another song called Fell on Black Days that I'm sure a lot of people know. And a song called Tighter and Tighter, which made it on to their next album, um, uh, Down on the Upside. And then there was Black Hole Sun. And when Beinhorn got the tape, he said he listened to it 15 times in a row, called Chris Cornell and said, you're a fucking genius. Yeah, I remember <laughs> reading that. History, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, Fell on Black Days is an incredible song. Oh man, that's such oh, a great man. song. Yeah, they were working on that one for a long time. It was, it was, it, 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 it before it made it onto Super Unknown, it, it kind of went through a couple different permutations and. And until he finally nailed that one, and, and I'm glad they kind of sat on it, waited to kind of hone it until it was what it became. Because yeah, that is a, just a fantastic song. Now, um, uh, you know, you're, you're you're you've chosen as your subject for this book uh, someone who is as much as he was famous, he was also very private in the sense that there was really he was never in the headlines for any kind of craziness. Um, you know, he was uh, he married, and then he got divorced, and then married again. He wasn't dating in the you know like <laughs> like some of these rock stars do, and you know cavorting and wildness and everything, and always in the papers. And although if he did, I don't think anybody would have batted an eye, since it's kind of the world that he was also living in. So it was interesting that you chose uh, someone like that to kind of to penetrate the walls and granted I, I can understand um because of that what is what is what do you call it the estate of chris cornell or whatever right could be a little protective and standoffish but uh it's nice to know that you know he's a very popular guy because he really was a down-to-earth kind of guy 
lots of people want to talk about him and talk talk him up and and so that's that's really cool like i i honestly when i when i stepped back i i realized when i heard about this book from greg i was like chris cornell book you know what no one's ever paid this guy that kind of tribute for as huge a person as he was in music so right it's it's it but i need to be reminded of that though because of just he was always just there as much as a such a such a charismatic figure he was just always there it's so crazy that a lot of people just dismissed Soundgarden as much as they were so huge and influential and and I love them so much even myself I've I've caught myself dismissing them and then reminding myself remember how much you loved this band so yeah it's it's great I'm glad that you wrote this book and and to have everybody maybe as well get reminded that you know don't forget Soundgarden and when you think about it, you know, you wrote about it in your book. It was one of the reasons why they reunited in the first place because his kids were growing up and he he was starting to realize that his legacy was being forgotten. So this book, in a way, if anything, can help with that, you know? I hope so. You know, it's, it's, it's a valid point you make there. You know, throughout his life, Chris was kind of always there, you know? Um, he wasn't really the, the messy rock star. He didn't cause a lot of drama in the press. Um, you know, there was all these other people that were going through a lot of personal and very public turmoil and a lot of tragedy, you know, um, it was public and had exactly, you know, Andrew Wood, uh, Kurt Cobain, his friend, Shannon Hoon, Jeff Buckley, uh, Lane Staley. There was a, there was this constant, you know, thread of his life of being someone kind of people leaned on in those moments. Um, and being that guy who was kind of rock solid for everybody else, you know, you know, it's a, it's a book, it's rock and roll, but there's not a lot of sex in it. <laughs> he was pretty, you know, pretty monogamous dude, yeah, uh, really right. cared about his family. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of people, it's hard to, you know, kind of wrap your mind around that. Just a normal stand up dude that, you know, wrote amazing songs and had this pain that, you know, he didn't really want to go into or, and, you know, uh, make a, make a, a scene about, and, you know, he was, he was very much a, a very down to earth person who liked going for hikes in the woods and drinking beer with his buddies, you know, early on. And, and, uh, the rock star life, you know, overtook him and he pursued that dream to the fullest ability. And, uh, you know, wasn't necessarily always caught up in the trappings of it. And, you know, and it wasn't always revealing of himself too, which has made it kind of hard for people also, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of the choices he made were compounding and, uh, people didn't necessarily like audio slave at the, in the, in the beginning, you know, especially the critics, uh, pitchfork, I think gave it a 1.6 or 1.7 or something like that, even though it sold 3 million copies. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I hope that when people read this book, they kind of get a clear sense of him and, and understand if they can take a step back, like you had mentioned, you know, and, and see like, wow, it's amazing that this this guy had written so much music and had done so much and accomplished so much and played so many places and meant so much to so many people and kind of look at the bigger picture of that and, and really see what, it, what an achievement it really was. I think, uh, you know, with autobiographies, um the only ones that ever get published are the ones where there's a fall and then there's redemption. Right. And uh, Chris Cornell's life, at the end of the book, obviously, I'm not giving away anything, um, you talk about, you know, that fateful Detroit night. Um, I didn't know some of the, uh, the details about that, and it's really, wow. I just, oh, man. And um, uh, the, uh, what do you call that, the... I might have lost for words, but the, not the funeral. Is it the funeral or the wake? That, and, and there was also a, a concert that you attended. Right. There was, a, there was a funeral, and then there was the concert that I attended. It was kind of like a five-hour celebration, you know, right. of Metallica, Foo Fighters. But pretty much every big band in the world <laughs> performed did, that night. In the did forum, I read right so. that Tom Hanks, like that caliber, was there? Like Tom Hanks was oh, yeah. there? Right. Tom Hanks' wife performed. Rita Wilson performed. Oh, really? Uh, Brad Pitt was there. Josh Brolin was there. Jimmy Kimmel emceed it. Um, yeah, it, it was. It was. Leonardo DiCaprio was backstage, and I mean, it was just. It was. Everyone was there for that show. Everyone was there for that show. Um, you could really feel like it, it's also another reminder of just how empty that is. I. It's. 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 Um. You know. When Chris Cornell died, I. I listen to Temple of the Dog. Right. 
Yeah, it was. Yeah, it's pretty heavy. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, all night thing. Say hello to heaven. You know, those songs that he wrote for others really, you know, they take on a different meaning now for sure. I, I listen to them now, and I, I definitely feel something different than I ever felt before when I listened to that music. And it's difficult to do that. You know, it's it's difficult for a lot of people to do that still, even to this day. I mean, his 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 not being here continues to affect a lot of people. And, um, you know, I tried to be definitely cognizant of that, too, when I wrote the book. You know, this is this isn't just someone who, you know, I saw in concert, someone that, you know, I admired. This is a real person who meant a lot to a lot of real people. And I didn't take that lightly. You know, I, I tried to be as respectful as I could of that process also and and not encroach where, you know, it wasn't necessary for me to encroach and be respectful of people's desire to not, you know, necessarily get into things they didn't want to get into. Yeah, it's um, we all know the inevitable end to Chris Cornell's life, but leading up to it in the book, you uh, you mentioned very quickly about um, a song he had written. Now, I didn't write it down, but um, it was uh, a song about how he was worried for his kids um, in dealing with whatever life will throw at them. I can't remember the name of the song, uh, but it's mentioned in your book. And uh, I knew what was coming up in the next chapter. It was one of the late last albums that he... What was it called? I think it was on Higher Truth. The song name escapes me also at the moment. Yeah, yeah, Higher Truth, it was the album. But the song is about his kids and how he was, you know, so worried and concerned for, you know, them losing their innocence and having to deal with the harshness of life. And, And you knew, you know, anyone who reads your book knows the end you know what, what's coming up, you know, what chapters are left to be read. And uh, when I read that, I was like, okay, I really want to know what those last chapters are going to be and how he's going to describe um, the inevitable. Like how you're going to, you're going to, what are you going to write about? How are you going to frame, frame <laughs> it? And it was pretty heavy, man. Like it was like, that was tough to read that. It was, it was tough to write. I'm not going to lie. There was, there was definitely multiple versions I I had written of that specific chapter and it was of all the parts of the book to write it was definitely the most challenging um kind of got into a dark headspace myself there for a little bit as I was as I was working on it but you know the more I thought about it the more I thought about you know I don't want to give away the ending but you know it's a promise Chris Cornell made to himself very very early on in his life and the way I saw it and the way that I hope a lot of people see it is that you know his life ended tragically. You know, there's no, there's no doubt about that. You know, and I, I'll always feel for his children and his family and and all the people that you know still mourn the fact that he's not here. But his life itself wasn't a tragedy. You know, he he lived his life to the fullest. He he made a lot of music that was very helpful to a lot of people, millions of people all over the world in, in different times of need, and and he accomplished a lot. And I and I hope when people read this book. They'll, they'll probably come away sad, and, I, and I'm sure that you know there's there's definitely good reason for that to happen. But I hope that they also recognize, uh, you know, just that he he lived a dream. Uh, he 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 really did it, and he took the life uh, life by the horns and and made the most of it. Yeah, I, I you you do walk away from that. Uh, oh, when you when you read your book, I mean it. It's great. I mean, uh, congrats, man. It's a it's a wonderful wonderful trip down memory lane and um, a, a kind of a reminder that uh, I should really brush up on my sound garden in Chris <laughs> Cornell. <laughs> and even, I'll look at your playlist. I got you. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I heard the first Audio Slave album, but then I, uh, again, in reading this, I, I went through the other two. I, I, did, I didn't even know they had three. Uh, <laughs> so I'm a little out of touch with that. So so it was like it was uh, it was really cool. I, I, I really enjoyed that. Now, um, the book is like we said off the top, it's coming out tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an interesting time to release anything, albums, books, anything. How is this rolling out? How, I'm very curious just because it's the <sighs> it's the harsh reality of the world we're in right now. Um, how, how is the rollout of the book going to happen? I mean, I'm going to do my best to let everybody know, uh, this exists and, uh, you know, spread the word on it, but how else? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, firstly, thank you for (laughs) doing your part and making that happen. I really do appreciate it. Um, secondly, I got to thank a lot of people that you really have been very supportive to me over the last 
two years that have helped me get this off the ground and have been very vocal about, you know, their appreciation for the book and have opened up a lot of doors and opportunities for me to, you know, do excerpts and things in different places. And I've been doing fan Q and A's. Uh, I have an author event, uh, with Powell's books next week, next Friday. Um, the date escapes me. I probably could look at a calendar and tell you that. Um, but it's, it's definitely a challenge, um, to try to, you know, get people as, as aware of it as possible while also knowing that they can't, you can't physically go out there and say, Hey, you know who, here I am, <laughs> you know, I wrote this book. I'd love for you to buy it, you know, right. through a book tour or whatever. Right. So social media is kind of, you know, the go-to, you know, I'm, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. I'm, I'm doing everything I can to engage with as many people as possible one-on-one, you know, um, and, and, and really just, you know, trying to promote the book as, 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 you know, as authentically as I can and let people know, you know, I'm coming from a place, um, where I just, you know, want to tell Chris Cornell's story in a, in a positive way where they understand where he came from. And it's not a salacious tell all book. It's not really mired in controversy and things like that. You know, it's a celebration of a man and his music. And I think that a lot, that's kind of that message resonates with a lot of people. And uh, I hope it continues to, and I hope that they read the book and, and kind of, un, you know, understand more about him and, and, and that's all I really can do, you know, is just try to trumpet it uh, in the avenues that are available and, and hope the right people find it. This is your second book? Yes. Your first book was Lighters in the Sky? Yeah, that's, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's a book about uh, the greatest concerts of all time. Am, am I right? Yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's broken down by year. So basically the, the conceit of that book is if you could go back in time in any year and see one show from that year, you know, which show would it be? Right. And so like, you know, I go down the line, 1960 to 2016 of picking different concerts from different years of, you know, if I could go back in time, I would definitely want to see, you know, Led Zeppelin at Earl's court in 1975 or, <laughs> you know, uh, 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 uh you know, uh, the Monterey pop festival or, or even, uh, you know, Prince at the, uh, the forum in 1984 when Bruce Springsteen Madonna come out, you know, just, just really cool shows that I think maybe people are aware of or are not aware of, but, you know, would want to check out later if uh, they heard about them. Did you include uh, the, the concert that started what eventually became the title of your book, which was uh, the, the way that people do lighters in a show? Was it like I've heard conflicting reports as to how that started? I haven't. Let me, I, what's your, what's, what are you reporting out there, Danko? Tell me. Uh, well, because um, well, I interviewed him. Uh, it's, uh, it was from Donald, K. Dar- Donald, Donald Tarleton, known as Donald K. Donald in Canada. And he was, uh, uh, promote, he's a promoter, and he, uh, he was promoting uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Plastic Ono Band in 1969, 1970. Uh, so John Lennon... And Yoko Ono were going to do the Plastic Ono Band in Toronto. And at the very last minute, the, they said, no, he can't. He's, uh, there's some sort of paperwork that needed to be done. They signed the paperwork. The, the show went on off without a hitch. At the end, Donald invited John Lennon to the next night, which was the Montreal show. Um, and uh, John Lennon, which was a Montreal show with the doors. And John Lennon said he couldn't. He's got to go to London. But... If you could tell the crowd to give peace a chance, and Donald, wrote, he said he was going to do that. He wrote a little blurb in French and in English, and he took out of his pocket a, a, a match, and everybody else in the crowd did, and that was what the first show that started the whole lighters tradition. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I, I, I don't. Was that in 69? 69-70. It's like a few gotcha. months after the bed-in um, in Montreal, the Montreal bed-in. So, right. Uh, so Donald was uh, very instrumental in that whole bed-in thing with John Lennon. And uh, he also is credited for um, kind of inventing backstage catering for bands that you, know, you see <laughs> nice. now. Because he uh, was uh, working the Johnny Cash show uh, and he had put sandwiches out in his dressing room. And then when uh, Johnny came in, he started eating the sandwiches. And, the, and Johnny's manager uh, told Donald, thank you very much for the sandwiches. And then that's what Donald did every single time he worked with a band. So um, I was curious when I saw the title of your book, Lighters in the Sky. I'm like, oh, I wonder if the origin of that title is 
one of the concerts included? I think uh, I went with Woodstock for 69. I think I went with the Allman Brothers at Fillmore East for 70. Or I can't quite remember. I, oh, I, I see. 71. So it's only uh, each year gets a show. Right, yes. Oh, so, I see. Okay. But I'm, now I'm reconsidering. Now I'm wondering if I was even right in the first <laughs> place, because that sounds badass. Donald wrote a little blurb, and he told everyone that John Lennon wanted to be here tonight, but he says, you know, uh, tell everyone, give peace a chance. So, Was that the same Toronto concert where Alice Cooper threw the chicken in the crowd, and like everyone tore it up to pieces? Yeah, so that happened the okay. night before, and then Donald... Um, uh, asked him to come to Montreal tomorrow with, and play with the Doors at the I, uh, Montreal Forum. I, uh, I interviewed D.A. Pennybaker, uh, the director of Don't Look Back once, and he filmed that Toronto concert. He said it was one of the most insane things he's, he's ever seen watching Alice Cooper do that. Oh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Just wild times. Yeah. Just wild times. I mean, wild times, my friend. Oh, it's so great. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is great. I, this is yeah, congrats, man. I'm, I'm, I'm. I kind of feel like this is. I feel I, I like to bask in your excitement. I mean, it's just about <laughs> to to drop, so it's it's cool that I'm getting you the the day before. Um, I'm stoked, man. You can you can probably tell that you can feel the heat over the over the line here. I'm I cannot wait for people to read this book. Um, you know, it's Chris Cornell's badass. You know, people have been you know obviously coming to terms with his loss for a long time, but I hope they read this book. And I remember this dude rocked in his, in his real life, uh, made some amazing songs, and I can't wait to hear the feedback from people, hopefully, hopefully, saying that they enjoyed it. But until that happens, I'm just going to be over here excited, and I, I can't wait for people to read it. I enjoyed it. 